Good evening, Clarice. I thought you might like your podcast back, Doctor. Just until you get your view. How very thoughtful. Your anagrams are showing, Doctor. Downplaying co-ops. Now playing podcasts in the movie review show. Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You were telling me about this podcast back in Baltimore, sir. Please continue now. Well, I've gone to their website now, playingpodcast.com. Have you? Everything you need to know is there in those pages. Then tell me how. First, principles, Clarice. Simplicity. Stuart, Arnie, and Jacob. What is their nature? What do they do, these podcast hosts you seek? They review movies. No, that is incidental. They watch all movies in the Hannibal Lecter series from 1986's Manhunter through the prequel Hannibal Rising. They review one movie each week. That is their nature. And how do they do these reviews, Clarice? Make an effort to answer now. They just... No. They review with in-depth analysis, including detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Don't you hear the coming spoilers, Clarice? All right, yes. Now please tell me how. No. It is time to listen to the show, Clarice. Doctor, we don't have any more time for any of this now. No. I will listen now. Today we're discussing Red Dragon, starring Anthony Hopkins, Edward Norton, Ray Fiennes, Harvey Keitel, and directed by Brett Ratner. (laughs) I'm Arnie, the co-host of Now Playing Who Didn't Think We'd Be Reviewing Two Brett Ratner Films in One Calendar Year. (laughs) Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob, again, much like the Manhunter review, still here, maybe slightly different clothes. (laughs) But since the Manhunter review... I actually have some new ink. I got this giant back tattoo. Actually, it's back and ass. I'll happily show it to both of you next time we're at Comic-Con. That's okay. <laughs> Only if you're as built as Ray Fines by then, Arnie. <laughs> I can try. I can't make any promises. <laughs> I think you can get built like Ray Fines. He's not very built in this movie. He's very naked, but I, I, <laughs> I, I feel like he's one of the strange casting choices in a very densely movie star populated cast. Well, we're going to discuss all of that, but we are here once again watching Will Graham chase down the Tooth Fairy. Well, if it works, keep at it. I mean, we admit it when we saw Manhunter, most people don't know this exists. And if they do, there's mixed feelings about whether it even works or if it even fits in with the rest of the Lecter universe. I think that it's kind of neat that you can pick and choose. It's not dissimilar from Exorcist 4, where you can get whichever version satisfies you. Of course, neither one did, but <laughs> presumably... Hey, I like the first one. <laughs> yeah, for some weird reason. But yeah, but presumably, you know, it's it's fun that as much as I love things about Manhunter, the arty shots and the compositions and all that, there's no denying the fact that I love the Anthony Hopkins elector more than Brian Cox, and it's nice to be able to get an attempt at both. You know, they got the cinematographer 
quarterback that shot Manhunter, and they got the Lecter that we all want to see in one big package. So it's an interesting experiment. I can't say that I was rushing to see any more Lecter after Hannibal. I was disappointed when I saw it in theaters, and I honestly didn't think we'd ever see him play the part again, but it didn't take them much longer for Dino to strong-arm a sequel. Well, that's what I'm scratching my head about. Red Dragon came out a year after Hannibal, and how did that happen? I'm going to venture a guess, because since our last podcast, I read an article on Entertainment Weekly where they said Hannibal was the most anticipated movie sequel since The Phantom Menace at that time. Wow. So I'm thinking that, suckage or not, it opened well? Oh, no, it didn't just open well. It made a ton of money. It made a ton of money. It made more money than Silence of the Lambs. It is the most profitable movie in this entire series. And more to the point, Dino owns it. Dino will make sequels until there's no money coming in. He has no qualms about it. He was going to keep making Lecter movies. He wants to do it with the most quality people available. But hey, he'll do it with Brett Ratner if that's what it takes to get the movie out by next year. Now, wait a second. How do you know Brett Ratner isn't the quality person available? Well, you're right. They did try to go for Michael Bay, believe it or not, but he wasn't available. Oh, wow. I am a fan of Brett Ratner above Michael Bay. We talked with X-Men 3 about how I feel Brett Ratner is unfairly maligned. And I think he's a strange choice for Red Dragon, though, especially at this point. He'd done Money Talks and two Rush Hour films. I mean, this seems like a big departure from his wheelhouse. Dino De Laurentiis didn't even know who he was, but he knew that he was, quote-unquote, a hot director, and that they could get him and that he could make the deadline. So I think that that's why it happened. But you're right. There's nothing in this resume then or now that would make you think Ratner is right for Lecter. It's a very strange choice. But I'll say this about Ratner. He proved in X3 and in this movie he has no qualms dealing with some of the biggest egos in Hollywood. He fills his cast with big names and somehow he gets them all on the same page. And I think that's his talent, really, is that he's so affable a guy. You listen to his commentary on the DVD and all that. He just likes working with people. and It's a big party. You know, I, I look at X3, The Last Stand, and it, it kind of feels like a Hollywood bash that goes on for an extra hour with everyone, you know, <laughs> invited just piling on and all the money being spent. I mean, and and same thing here. Look at this cast. Not only did they get Lecter back with Anthony Hopkins, look at who they got to fill all these parts. This is no small chump cast. I mean, these are big-time people. In my estimation, these are heavyweight actors. Ed Norton, Keitel... Philip Seymour Hoffman, Ray Fiennes, these are people that don't suffer fools lightly, and they're not going to make movies that don't have an artistic quality to it. I rarely see them sell out and make popcorn junk. They're here, as Ratner is, to make maybe the proper sequel to Silence of the Lambs. That seems to be the template. That seems to be the mission. And I'm excited by this. I love this cast from so many other works. Ed Norton, I'm a big fan of his. I have been ever since Primal Fear. Harvey Keitel. I came a little late to Harvey Keitel, Reservoir Dogs, but... And then Ray Fiennes. Honestly, I hadn't seen Ray Fiennes in much. I could think Schindler's List, and that was about it. I actually, as some now-playing homework, went and it had bubbled its way to the top of my Netflix queue anyway. I went and watched The Constant Gardener, just to get a bit more of a feel for this actor. I like that movie, and I like Ray Fiennes, but he's very delicate. I feel like if I were going to cast Dollarhide, I would think of about 50 other guys I would go to, including 
other ones up before it, including Nick Cage and Sean Penn. Believe it or not, the worst idea that you can find floating around the internet, I don't think it was ever seriously considered, but Rat Ratner comes from music videos. Michael Jackson was a big Ratner <laughs> fan, was begging to play Dollar Hide. I'm like, well, you got the freak right. But the bodybuilding, intimidating red dragon monster part, I don't... Would you like some Jesus juice before I bite your lips? <laughs> It would certainly be a very different movie with Michael Jackson playing the Red Dragon, but I don't feel like Ray Fiennes is much better suited than Michael. He's willowy. He's delicate. He's not buff. He's very British and makes these period drama movies. You know, they can be very dry. I feel like there was a Seinfeld joke about English patient and that he's really the reason why. There's just something about the movies that he makes that are just a little too austere for American audiences. Which is why I hadn't seen him in much. Yeah. And I'm sure that's why he was drawn to this part. No one's ever going to give him another shot to play some monstrous serial killer, mother complex nightmare. Well, he was Lord Voldemort in the Harry Potter films, which is almost exactly what you just described. No, you're true, and and, and totally forgotten about that. I forget it, too, because he's unrecognizable under that makeup. Yeah, it's the makeup. And I don't think he showed up until the fourth film, so Mm -hmm. he hadn't done the movie when he got this part. So maybe this is the gateway into him getting that role. But regardless, the cast is impressive, and I actually worry for Ratner, because, yeah, with the experience that he has, I wouldn't know how I would feel directing these caliber of people in a Thomas Harris-loved novel with the resume that he has. You know, it had to be intimidating, but there's nothing about it. When you listen to the guy in the commentary, he was down for it. It was a party. He was like, oh, sure, I'll give it a whirl. Why not? His rationale was this, that each Hannibal Lecter movie had been made by a great director who took the material and did something entirely different with it. So that gave him the freedom to do something entirely different with it himself. That's his words, is that he felt like he had the freedom to make the Hannibal Lecter movie in his style. So that was the goal. And I actually see that because when I was thinking about him as a director, I'm like, the only series I can even come close to equating this to is like Mission Impossible, where every film, you've got the same star, but you've got a different director really putting their own spin on it. Yeah, I think that's fun. You know, we went through that with Philip K. Dick. I certainly love it when we get to see the director kind of step up and show what they do. And I think these Lecter movies kind of show that. Even when we keep the same Lecter or some of the same elements, they feel entirely different, largely because of who's behind the camera. But the story, this time we're going to see a lot of familiar elements. Well, why don't you tell us about the story in a plot summary? Well, the skeleton of the story is pretty much the same as Manhunter. There's a criminal profiler named Will Graham, now played by Edward Norton, who is called out of retirement to help the FBI find connections between two families murdered in identical fashion in Birmingham and Atlanta. Graham pours over the various sordid details of the case, broken mirror shards placed in the eyes of each victim, both families' pets executed, unusual bite marks left on the mothers, etc., etc., and he finds a Chinese symbol carved into a tree trunk overlooking the Birmingham house that translates as Red Dragon the murderous alternate identity of deformed film developer Francis Dollarhide, now played by Ray Fiennes. What has changed in this iteration of the story is the involvement of Dr. Hannibal Lecter, now played for the third and quite possibly final time by Sir Anthony Hopkins. This movie actually starts with a younger, ponytailed Lecter feeding a bad flautist internal organs and sweetbreads to the luminaries of the Baltimore Philharmonic Orchestra. 
and then shortly thereafter trying to kill Will Graham after the profiler fingers him for a series of recent cannibal murders. Both men inflict severe puncture wounds on each other, but survive the attacks, and Hannibal is shipped off to a Baltimore sanitarium where he becomes the pet of the vain and stupid Dr. Chilton. Now, there are many new scenes of Will consulting with Hannibal on the Tooth Fairy case, and the madman loves to lord his intellectual superiority over the man who caught him as he teases out insights and clues. Meanwhile, Lecter still communicates with Dollarhide in code in a tabloid newspaper and encourages him to kill Graham's family by publishing the profiler's home address. We spend more time on Francis Dollarhide's backstory, too. He dons his crazy grandmother's false teeth and tattoos up his back to physically embody a scary monster he believes speaks to him from inside a William Blake painting. The Red Dragon tries to keep Francis focused on murdering the journalist who wrote lies about them and screening footage of the next family he's going to kill but after going on a few dates with a blind co-worker named Reba, Francis tries to silence his violent red dragon alter ego, and he even goes so far as to fly to the New York City Museum where the original Blake painting is archived and use Grandma's dentures to literally chew the canvas to bits. But the voices don't stop with the destruction of the art, and Dollarhide is forced to stage his own death and burn down his house once Graham has linked him as the developer of both murdered families' home movies. Dollarhide uses Lecter's tip to strike Will, his wife, and son at home in Florida on an extended climax, but Graham has read Francis's scrapbook that was recovered from the rubble of his house and grown to empathize with Francis for the abuse he suffered from his grandmother. And so when Will's son is being held at knife point, Will actually manages to use that empathy to talk him down and eventually puts Dollarhide down in a hail of bullets. Lecter can't resist getting the last word in via a letter he mails to a recovering Graham, and Dr. Chilton informs Lecter a pretty FBI trainee with a soft spot for Lamb is here to see him as credits roll. So the movie starts differently than Manhunter. And the book. This is something invented by Ted Talley, the original Silence of the Lamb screenwriter. He felt like he wanted to dramatize this scene. And I think his instincts are right. I think that this is a great way to get us into the world of Red Dragon and make this prequel feel earned. Because if they were to follow the book, we wouldn't meet Lecter for a while. But the way they've constructed it here, he's the first guy we see. One of my complaints about a lot of modern movies is how much they dumb it down. They throw in those subtitles to tell you where they're at, and they do that a lot in this film. Whereas with Manhunter, you're thrown in the middle of it. It just starts. You're confused. I kind of like that feeling, but I feel at this point, now that this is a proper Hannibal Universe film using Anthony Hopkins, I feel that showing this scene that's alluded to in Manhunter, showing this confrontation between Will Graham and Hannibal, you need it. It's it's earned now. We want to see that. Maybe you could take it as dumbing it down and trying to tie all the ends together for you, but I like it. I, I feel that at this point in time, we need this scene now. I want to see it. I want to see Graham and Hannibal face off. Here's the thing, and I have this problem sometimes And honestly, with a lot of films, especially prequels, what they're going to show me is not as cool as what I'd imagined. (laughs) I definitely had that feeling in Hannibal when we saw the footage of Lecter attacking the night nurse. You know, it had been implied with a photograph we never saw Mm -hmm. of something horrible he did to her jaw. Well, when we finally saw it, boy, that sucked. (laughs) Yeah, it was a flip lock. But here, let's kind of go through this because I, I just wasn't too happy with what we got. We start off. The whole opening is a symphony, and I'm very confused, because we just saw Manhunter a few weeks ago, and I didn't realize we were going to start with the capture of Lecter. I saw this in theaters, but I'd forgotten this. 
And so when we're at the symphony, when I see Lecter in the audience, all of a sudden it clicks. I have the aha moment. And I have a second aha moment. Hannibal Lecter, he likes fine dining. He likes the arts. I've all of a sudden realized he's a cannibalistic Fraser Crane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's exactly what he is. He is a joke on high-class culture. I mean, the detail that I really love that really sells it, the ponytail. The guy's got a ponytail in 1980. That would have been cutting edge. I thought that's how they were just trying to make him look younger, because obviously <laughs> Ratner, I guess they hadn't done X3 yet, where they de-age Patrick Stewart. And... Mm-hmm. Well, they experimented it with here. There are a few scenes where they actually take out gross feet. But yeah, it's not as sophisticated, and I don't think they had quite the budget that X3 did. But yeah, exactly. How do you de-age Anthony Hopkins when he You he's... don't put him on a diet, I guess. No. <laughs> he's on a diet. It's just, he needed another year to get down to his 91 weight. But you deal with what you can. I'd much, certainly much rather have older, wrinklier Anthony Hopkins than somebody else playing Lecter in a prequel or younger. That's next week. Yes, that is next week. I'll go with you. Give me a ponytail and I'm smiling. I like it. I like this guy. And here's the thing. I, I kept making this complaint with Hannibal. I made a lot of complaints during Hannibal, but one of them was that so much of Hopkins acting and so much of the power of Hannibal was in his face. I love this opening scene where he's sitting there. You know, they alluded to this in Hannibal, how he ate this flute player because he kept screwing up during the symphony. And, like, they enhance that flute so every time it messes up, you could hear it. And I just love the the little twitches in Hannibal's face as he's sitting there. And you could tell, like, this totally insignificant instrument, how much it bugs him whenever it's the wrong note or it's, it's not quite timed. And, again, that's all done in his face. Maybe it's better direction here or maybe it's just that's how Hannibal communicates to me. Uh, he's gripping me already just in this opening scene. It's not better direction. But I agree with you. I like the way that Hopkins is pegged. <laughs> They're doing something different. You anti-Rat Knight. I definitely will be talking about what Ratner is bringing as a director, and I can offer a lot of proof as to why he's not up to the task. But Hopkins is still good. You're right. I like the way that he is doing the character. Free, smug, the smirk is still there. The twinkle in the eye. The things that we loved about him when he was caged and coy, they're right here in this concert. And I'm enjoying it i do like seeing him before he was hannibal the cannibal mm-hmm. it's good to see and of course Stuart, you didn't like when he fed the little kid brains how do you feel when he's serving flutist to all the members of society <laughs> I think that's more apropos. I think it's funny. And, you know, it reminded me of something Barney said. It's actually in the novel of Hannibal. But something he says is that Lecter never lies. When someone says, hey, what's this amuse-bouche that we're eating? Lecter doesn't come up with some lie or something. He just, through his wit, he evades the question. He changes the subject. He never does lie to them. He never says, oh, it's this. He lets them make the choice to eat it without ever telling them that it's not (laughs) the flutist. Uh, sweetbreads. <laughs> I love that about Lecter. You know, I just feel like at the end there's a refinement to him and that he just would not dare lie, but he has no problem serving them the bad flutist. That's a retcon, by the way. Did you catch the name of the flutist? Benjamin Rasbell. Does it ring a bell? No. It's the head in the jar in Silence of the Lambs. Oh, that was the flutist? Yeah. 
Nice. That's the connection here. They've totally retconned this, but that is the guy. Lecter killed him. He was his patient, and he bored him, and he hated the way he played the flute. And his therapy was going nowhere. For all of those reasons, that's why he put the stiletto in him during a therapy session. He was not killed by Buffalo Bill, only in the movie. One little detail that I do love here, really nice way that they're selling it. I feel like a lot of the directing choices are heavy-handing, and some of the dialogue sometimes is underlying the obvious. But there is a really nice quick shot of a lipstick smudge on a coffee cup right after they're finished eating the dinner. And I just thought that was a nice way of nodding your head to the fact that, that he had just participated in mass cannibalism. I thought that was a clever little touch, and it, it changes the moment just enough that we're ready to introduce Graham. We find out that Graham has been working with Lecter to find out who's been killing all these people around Baltimore. Now, is this a retcon that Lecter is a forensic psychologist? Did we know that before? I don't think I understood it that way, but uh, it wasn't clear. I'll put it that way. I wasn't a careful enough reader to pick that out if they told me that before. Because, yeah, it's specifically called out here. And when he's talking about his patients, I just kind of thought he was a therapist. <laughs> he is. That's predominantly how I've understood him. And again, that is how he even got close to Benjamin Raspail and learned his secrets. Or Verger, for that matter. But this capture of Lecter isn't what I like, because in my mind, I figured he would be a hard motherfucker to catch. He's smart. He's wily. I would think it would be as hard to bring him down as Buffalo Bill or as the Tooth Fairy. And here, you've got Norton, and it turns out Norton and Lecter are pals. They've been working together on this case. He's been helping Norton decipher who the killer is. And, of course, the killer is Lecter, and Graham just kind of stumbles upon it like he's opening a book. Oh, sweet bread. Humans. Well, that part is clumsy, but he's figured it out. He's put out together that the organs being taken from the bodies are being eaten. He's put together the cannibal part. And he's asking for Lecter's opinion of that. That's what makes the scene tense, is that, you know, he doesn't realize what's staring him at the face. He's actually asking the man responsible for the help in drawing the conclusion. I kind of like it, but you're right. It's painful that he just reaches over and reads the gastronomy book, and it's earmarked. Like, Lecter needs to go to a cookbook in order to remember how to prepare liver. I mean, I think the guy can do it from scratch. He could write his own cookbook, for Christ's sake, at this point. He's so mass-marketed. <laughs> I don't like the cookbook, but I like that you see Will Graham starting to figure out, even ask Lecter, why didn't you figure this out? You're smarter than me. Like, Graham's always underestimating himself, and that becomes a bigger thing when he's facing off with Lecter later in the film. Like, I like that. I hate that there's a cookbook sitting there and some arrows sitting around, but I like the buildup to that moment. I would put it this way. I like the moment. I don't think it's staged particularly well. And that'll be something that I, you can just keep playing that in a loop because I feel like a lot of these scenes, I'm going to say that again and again. I feel like as a screenplay, Ted Talley has done a wonderful job of finding the story from Red Dragon. I'm actually going to venture and say that I think Ted Talley deserves the Oscar for his Red Dragon screenplay more than his Silence of the Lambs screenplay because the Lambs book and movie are pretty close. He did a little bit of rearranging and fine-tuning, but at the end of the day, the hard work had already been done for him by the novelist Thomas Harris. Here, he's really worked to shape Red Dragon and to give it something that not only was not in the last movie, it's a better story than it is on the page. I feel like the screenplay for Red Dragon is better than the Thomas Harris novel, but the staging of it 
is not as good as we've seen in some of the other versions. And I do feel like this scene is a perfect representation of things we needed to know and observe that are done so matter-of-fact, like putting a spotlight on it, like open the book and a close-up of the sweetbreads. I mean, just like really, like a close-up of the arrows that he's going to put in them. And just all of this is so heavy-handed. It's heavy-handed direction. I disagree, not with the heavy-handed direction. I disagree that this was well-written, though. I still think that Lecter shouldn't have been brought down by happenstance. And that is the writing. That is not the directing. That is not the staging. That is the writing. And I think that Lecter should have been hunted more. The fact that the irony of Lecter's being consulted to catch himself is, it's dumb. No, I disagree. I Not only do I enjoy it, but they got to get to it. We're not going to spend half an hour of watching Will do what it takes to figure this out with the chase scene and all. This is the start of a movie. It's really just the preamble. It's important that we get Lecter behind bars to get this story going. So it's all that we need. You're not wrong. It needs to be quick or it needs to not be there. But I don't like how they did it. I'm not saying they spent too little time on it. I'm just saying I don't like how they did it. It makes Lecter less cool. It makes him less super. And when he's found out, he stabs Graham and there's a shootout and they both end up pretty much dead. I mean, they both end up living, but they both look dead. It's dumb. It is just convenient. Well, it should be said that it has always been written that this is basically how Graham found him. He walked into his office, saw a book, and he knew. And in original Manhunter and all of that, that's a dialogue he has with the boy, his son. And the idea is that their minds think alike so much that that's how they can figure each other out. That's what they want you to walk away from it. But that's not how it's played here, though. I feel like it is. I feel like they are two peers with Graham. You're right. Not having the confidence to realize that he is as smart as Lecter. Graham, I mean, he seems tired and exhausted here. It it does seem like dumb luck. I almost feel like Lecter is retconning how he was caught because he doesn't want to be caught by dumb luck. I kind of like the poetic justice that this brilliant serial killer, he just got too confident and this guy kind of stumbled in and caught him. Like, I like that idea. And I feel like Lecter is like, no, no, you really are as smart as me. You really are a, a killer like me. And that's how you're able to catch me. Mm-hmm. But I guess I'm growing to it because it, it comes out in a line of dialogue. He's like, once he realizes it comes out, Lecter doesn't realize that he's been caught. He realizes his identity's been leaked. But he thinks he can take care of this. He's like, I'm going to eat your heart. You got courage. You got a lot of heart, kid. So I'm going to eat it. I mean, I just, I think that's funny. What you could argue is not so great is the arrows. That is a little convenient. And the way that Will stabs Lecter is the only unsatisfying moment in the scene for me. But everything up to that point, I'm enjoying. I like the tension, but the whole concept is off for me. But yes, we have to kind of get past it so that we can get to Manhunter. Yeah, the real movie. (laughs) And as before, Graham is retired and living on the beach. And can I just say Ed Norton looks terrible as a blonde? I am going to say that I feel Ed Norton's forced blonde hair is only slightly worse than the performance he's giving here. Thank you. (laughs) I don't think Ed Norton is any better than William Peterson. And who would have laid odds on that? No, no. (laughs) He is worse. This is a fine actor who's really impressed us in the 90s. But this is it, right? This is the moment where Ed Norton stopped being a good actor. I still think he's a good actor. And I think... From what? I'm curious to know what you would recommend from this past decade. The Hulk? I I I liked him as Bruce Banner in The Hulk. Okay, I didn't see it. I guess we'll get to that next year. But anything else? 
I'm going to say this. When <laughs> I like Ed Norton mostly because of Fight Club, one of my favorite films. Like, I love him in that film. I'm watching this film. This is the third time I've seen Red Dragon after I've seen Manhunter now. And I think he's worse than William Peterson. I know he bugged you a lot, Arnie. I kind of liked his aloofness in Manhunter. I thought it really fit the atmosphere and the tone of that film. Here, I don't know what Norton's doing. I feel like he's just reading his lines off. It's very cold. I don't see cunning. When I look at Lecter, I see him thinking behind his eyes. When I see Ed Norton delivering this performance, I see him reciting lines that he knows he's being paid to say. I don't see the mind working, and it's bothering me, because I think of Ed Norton as being a bright and calculating actor. And I just don't know why this performance is coming this way. I can only presume this is the beginning of the end for him. I feel like his career took a nosedive after Fight Club, and this was the first sign. I guess you could make the case for 25th Hour. A few people like that movie. I was hot and cold on it, but credible. But after that point, I really feel like Norton has gotten lost to the woods and has become a difficult actor to work for. He got dropped from Hulk. It, like He can't even get a gig anymore. I just feel like this was the beginning of the end. Well, this did come out after Death to Smoochie, so... Ooh. <laughs> oh. I won't hold anybody uh, responsible for that. That's just something that I will just continue to ignore exists. But I liked him better than Peterson. Uh. I did. I thought Peterson just... I hated his overdramatic line delivery here. You get Graham going through doing the exact same thing. He's got the micro cassette recorder, which caused me to analyze the timeline. And we're going to have to talk about the timeline a little bit because I don't know quite when this was. But he's got a micro cassette recorder and he's walking around and he's saying the same things. You took your gloves off. You took your gloves off, you son of a bitch. But Norton, for me, is pulling it off more because he's not delivering the lines like a high school theatrical production. He actually looks like a kid. He actually looks like he's still in high school. That's always been a problem for Norton, I think, is that he's always looked younger than he's actually playing. He seems too young for this part, for one. To be a contemporary of Lecter and going to him for advice, Hopkins is too old, he's too young, them side by side trying to work it up in the opening scene and the tet and tet that they're going to form, it feels off just physically. They don't look right together. But I don't feel like Norton is any better. I just go ahead and say I don't think Will Graham has been good in either incarnation of the movie. And that's a problem for me. I need to like the character. And so far, really, only Jodie Foster, a unfortunately maligned great actress of the <laughs> Silence of the Lambs movie, has been the only one to match and go toe-to-toe with Hopkins. I would say Ed Norton here is as good as Jodie Foster there. Oh, Arnie. Come yeah. on. Which isn't Come to say on. Ed Norton's hitting it out of the park. But... Well, no, because you wouldn't <laughs> no. give Jodie Foster a compliment to save your life. But I will say this. I think it's easily to say you are more empathetic with Cleary Starling than you ever are with Will Graham. And that his relationship with his family, which was the crux of Manhunter, is very important that he's doing everything to protect his wife and son, doesn't even factor into this movie at all. There's no pathos. There's no drama to him. There's no edge. He's not even trying to go to Lecter so that he can get the old scent back. I mean, that was the point of Manhunter, is that he's got to get the slime on him so he can get dirty and think like a killer again. Here, he's literally going to Lecter because he doesn't know what to do. And Lecter is smarter than him. We get this shot during the opening credits where we're getting this newspaper montage and it says, Top Cop goes to Looney Bin. Like, I never got that sense in this film that Graham had this breakdown because he got too much in the mind of a killer. Like, you're right, Stuart. He doesn't feel smart at all. He just feels lucky so much of the time. 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to flip-flop here. I'm going to play the role of Arnie like Arnie played in Manhunter, where originally I liked that first hour where we were with Graham and I was into the police procedural and we get into the Tooth Fairy. It kind of lost me. Here, I'm waiting for that Tooth Fairy moment because maybe that's going to save this film because I'm not enjoying <laughs> Will Graham at all. And this film feels very fast-paced. You know, when he's going through the homes and doing the clues of the, the murder, like this feels a lot faster than Manhunter and, and it probably is. Manhunter lingers and I kind of like that atmosphere here. It's moving fast and I'm glad because I'm not enjoying Norton at all. It is a style of both the screenwriting and directing that Red Dragon is much more brisk and to the point than Manhunter was. I mean, Manhunter is a movie that lives and dies by its mood. It's all about two guys staring at each other through a window, right? I mean, there's like all of this belabored staring and just, it's all Michael Mann, you know, that's what it is. And here, they're trying to tell the story. They're trying to honor the story and they got to get through a lot of information. I think Ted Talley has done a wonderful job of giving that information very, very fast. I'm not always pleased with the workmanlike pedestrian quality in which it's passed off through the direction. That's my struggle here, is that I appreciate that it's moving faster, but I don't think it's nearly as moody and atmospheric and scary as Manhunter can be in its best moments. See, part of me is wondering if this is a little watered down, having just seen Manhunter, and this is so close in story to Manhunter, right? I mean, every regard. Not every regard. One big thing missing, I didn't catch from this one that he kills by the moon. He's mentioned that he kills in a full moon, but it doesn't really seem to be what's driving him. They don't seem to be worried about the next full moon in this movie. No, they are. Uh, Harvey Keitel drops that line that it was one day short of a lunar cycle, and so they think they have 27 days till the next killing. Yeah, he says that at the beginning of the startup to get him hooked, and it never comes up again. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's that urgency that they need to solve this in three Mm -hmm. weeks like it does with Manhunter. Right. They're not talking about the moon, whereas the last time, when you get to his house, it's all it's like a NASA fan site. I mean, like he's got like, you know, like (laughs) Sputnik hanging from his ceiling and everything. I mean, the moon is so much about what's drawing the tooth fairy. And that's, of course, because Michael Mann had his own interpretation about what the killer should be like that had nothing to do with what's on the page. And here they're trying to honor and the moon is just less important than the backstory with his grandmother and some of the other motivating factors, Red Dragon, the William Blake painting, all of these play bigger parts here. So they've downplayed some of these elements. Uh, Maybe they're not gone, but for me, they feel much less important. You know, some things are stressed here that weren't in the first movie, and some things are just not there at all in the first movie. But even though I'd seen both of these movies before, when I was watching Manhunter a few weeks ago, there were things I didn't remember. I didn't remember a lot of the whys, the connective tissue. Seeing Red Dragon, I know, you know, I know that there's the padlock. I know that there's the carving in the tree. I know that he brought the bull cutters and I know why he did. But you know why you did because they're telling you better as well. I mean, it should be said, Manhunter really doesn't tell you a lot of the story. True. And leaves a lot of it to, I mean, it's not a particularly great piece of mystery storytelling. I wouldn't say they unfold the mystery in a great way. Tons of atmosphere, and I like it for its high qualities, but I feel like this one is telling you information when you need to know. It knows when to show, it knows when to hold back. That's important for a mystery. You need to know what you know, and you need to know what you don't know. And I always feel like in every scene in this movie, I know where Graham is at with what he knows and what he still needs to find out. 
And he's really brought in this time, not because he's such a great criminal mind, but because Crawford knows they really need to consult Lecter, and Graham's the only one who can do it. And he's basically leading Graham down this path. Now, what I didn't get, and you guys probably both know this, Stuart, you certainly do, but I didn't get that Dennis Farina and Harvey Keitel and that guy who was hitting on Jody in Silence of the Lambs, Scott Glenn, are all the same character. Yeah, yeah. I did not get that until they called him Crawford, because I didn't pay attention to Dennis Farina's name, I guess. And when Glenn was hitting on Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs, nothing about it drew me to that Dennis Farina character. So it took seeing Harvey Keitel filling in for Dennis Farina to make me realize this is the Jack Crawford saga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I caught Crawford's name this time with Keitel, and I'm like, I was wondering about that. Maybe it was a coincidence, but no, I did not realize they were the same. I feel like Silence of the Lambs was the best use of the Crawford character. But yeah, he's always been around. Even in the Hannibal book, he was there. Keitel, always kind of liked him. You know, he came up with the Scorsese pictures. He did a lot of cool 90s movies, indie films. He was the guy. He's a, a good get for this role. He feels right for it. I feel like I like Scott Glenn's performance for that Silence of the Lambs movie, but I don't know that that performance would work with him paired with this Ed Norton. So I'm glad Kaitel's here. I, I feel like he's the smarter of the two cops trying to work to catch the Tooth Fairy. He feels like a cop. Ed Norton yeah. doesn't feel like a cop. Ed Norton, I had the same problem with Fight Club. He doesn't feel like a brawler. You know, He feels very intellectual. That's the point of Fight Club, though. Yeah, I was going to say, that works for Fight Club because that's the struggle. Whereas here, we really have to believe he is a not only a cop, but a seasoned pro. One that is so good and has gone so deep that he's gone crazy and had to retire to Florida. And that's a stretch from Ed Norton. Yep, I'm just not buying it. I feel like it's serviceable. It's okay. Like a lot of things, I'll go with it, but I can't compliment it. I don't think it's good. Here's where I'm torn, is... I don't feel some parts of it are selling me quite right. I'm not getting tough off of him. I'm not getting seasoned off of him. But I'm an Ed Norton fan. I like seeing him. And so what he's doing here, the performance being given by a nobody doing the exact same things, the exact same ways, I might not give as much to. But because I kind of like Ed Norton, he's a comfortable presence. Him doing this gets a pass from me. See, Arnie, I'm a Norton fan, too. He is the reason I saw this film in theaters. I wasn't much of a Hannibal fan. I'd only seen Silence prior to this, and I saw this because it was Edward Norton. And man, he annoys the hell out of me in this film. I'm not going to say that I'm going to give him a pass in everything. He ruined the Italian job. He was miserable in that. But in this case, I felt he was adequate and because I enjoy his presence. And a couple of times I went back to Primal Fear, especially at the very end, which I'm sure we'll get to. But when he starts doing like the psycho mom voice, it was very Primal Fear to me, which is perhaps my favorite role of his above Fight Club. Yeah, originally was supposed to be Ethan Hawke, and I don't know whether Training Day came up or when that came about, but Hawke ended up doing different things. That choice makes slightly more sense to me. It's They're kind of the same thing, but Hawke's just a little um, scummier. He's a little tougher, yeah. Yeah, there's a little edge and raggedness to him that Norton doesn't play into that. The whole reason you cast Norton is because he looks so virginal and fresh-faced. He could never do anything wrong, and that's how he got you, because you just underestimate him, and that's when you see the dark side later on, it makes sense. Here, we're expected to think that he has a dark side from the get-go, and I look at the guy with the blonde hair, and I'm like, this is a Matthew McConaughey role. I mean, where are the bongos? (laughs) 
But what we're really here to see, Lecter. That Graham it just has to be good enough to get us back to Lecter. Now, I know, Manhunter, you guys made a big point of saying that Lecter was a non-issue, non-important, non-starter for you in this storyline. Had no use, should have been cut, I think is what you said, Arnie. Yeah, realistically, that should have streamlined the plot. But here, he's the reason we have Red Dragon. Right. Nobody's remaking Red Dragon sans Anthony Hopkins now. Right. So... I gotta ask you, is it working for you? And if so, why? Is it because of Hopkins or because they've integrated more to the storyline better? They've certainly given him more screen time. For me, it feels more shoehorned in. The first scene where he goes, because again, having just seen Manhunter, it actually worked better for me. You know, there's a big sense of nostalgia. It's like going back to Disney World. You see Anthony Heald's back as Chilton, a familiar Mm -hmm. scummy presence. You know, you get the cage, you get the walk down the hallway, you get the reveal behind the glass. So it's like, ah, Silence of the Lambs, I love you. <laughs> you know, it starts singing, it's a small cell after all. Yeah, no, I agree. It's the kinds of things that's easy for them to do. They're coasting on their infamy. Hopkins doesn't have to do much other than what he's always done for us to be up in our seats clapping and going, yay! He's back in the cage again. That Hannibal shit with him walking around Florence really wasn't working. We need him confined in order to scare us. That's what we're looking for Lecter to do, and he scares us when he's contained, and we don't know when he's going to burst out of it. I feel like this is the dynamic that serves him best. When he's free, he's bored, he's grumpy, he does he gets fat. It's just no good. <laughs> you, you know what's funny is I'm usually not the sequel guy. Like sequels annoy me, which is weird that I'm on now playing. Like I like the first go at it and there's a lot of originality there and I'm good with it. I guess I'm approaching this kind of fanboyish. Like I'm happy to see Lecter again in the jail cell. I smile when I saw Chilton show up, smug as ever. I'm kind of like going back to this familiar territory. Maybe even more so having seen Hannibal last week, that it it felt a lot better being here. And we can all admit, as much as we're enjoying the original vibes, nothing is hitting at the same impact. I mean, last time he could smell her cunt, this time he can smell his aftershave. It's just, it's not the same thing, you know? They're doing the same notes, but it's not as potent, it is not as strong, and some of that is... The fact that it's a relationship between two men and some of its directing choices, too. A lot of it's Norton's no fun to play off of. Yeah, I agree. You had disadvantages. What disadvantages? You're insane. Like, that should be a great conversation there. And, no, it kind of falls flat for me. See, and I'm actually dinging Hopkins. I thought his performance was weird here. He doesn't make eye contact with Graham. Well, why would he? He doesn't want to screw him or eat him. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. You know, we talked about in Silence of the Lambs when Clarice comes down to his cell, he's standing there waiting for her. Yes. I love it that this time he's just sitting there with his back to him. Like, I don't care about you. We get, by compare and contrast, how much her sexual chemistry was exciting him. I mean, we can now see that when he's not turned on, he's just less engaged. He calls it chin wagging. I love that part where he's like, I guess we'll be having more chin wags. You know, like he's like, oh, you'll be coming to see me all the time, I suppose. <laughs> but very different vibe, a very different attitude he has. Even though that the setup is very similar, I feel like his attitude towards Graham is very different. And why shouldn't it be? This is the man that put him away. And we don't really know what Lecter wants out of this. You know, he played along with Clarice because he was getting something out of it. He was getting stimulated by conversing with him. Do we know what Lecter wants when he agrees to help Graham figure out the Tooth Fairy case? I got that he 
wanted to vicariously live through the Tooth Fairy. You know, that's kind of what I was taking out of it. He wanted those tapes, you know, he wants to see life outside and fantasize about eating some families. So it's just the idea of being able to be privy to confidential police reports he otherwise couldn't read. That's what I took from it. But my problem is, after the one scene here, it's like, I don't know why Lecter's still in this film. I don't know what he's getting out of it. I don't know why Graham has to keep going back. I don't know why they have a gymnasium for psychopaths. I love, love that, though. Oh, yeah. yeah, I like it, but I just don't get it, you know? But it's just one of those things you didn't know you wanted. But, yeah, you always think of Lecter being in that little glass room, and now he finally get, he does get to have his exercise. You just can't cross the red line. I love that. I don't feel like they're unhelpful. I feel like Ted Talley has done a great job of him being able to explain parts of the story that, in Manhunter, William Peterson just kind of walked around and just magically decided, I can understand this now. You know, he's so, quote, unquote, quote, in the mind of the killer that he just, through osmosis, through being around these objects and these paraphernalia, is able to figure out, oh, you wanted to touch her, and you did it like this, and I mean, here, he has someone to play off of, and it just, as drama, that plays better. It's better to have two cops talking about a case than one cop looking at memorabilia and talking into a cassette recorder. But I'm missing that craziness that on the line that Will had in Manhunter, being on the line between a a cop and a serial killer. Oh, they're not doing that at all. No, they keep trying. Lecter, he tells Will, you caught me because we're very much alike. Like, they keep telling me that Will is a serial killer. I never get that sense. And for me, that was a big part of Manhunter. I liked that part of Will and for it to be missing here, man, let's get to the tooth fairy. Like, that's how I'm feeling. Like, I just, I just want to move on. You're not wrong. I think he is wrong. I'm enjoying this. I am. He reflected this film. It's so weird. (laughs) I don't get that he's dangerous. You are right with that. Well, that's all he's saying. We are all in agreement of that. Yeah, we're in agreement of that, but I'm still enjoying these scenes. I'm enjoying the investigation. Oh, I am too. I'm having a good time. I'm not sitting here biting my nails waiting for tooth fairy because i'm enjoying what we're getting i'm enjoying his investigation and i think i'm enjoying watching edward norton investigate more than i enjoy watching last guy investigate yeah and they spend more time on it i mean i feel like when we get up to the tree and we see the carving of the symbol we find out that it's a red dragon symbol i mean we spend more time putting those clues together whereas when they pop up in manhunter it's really just for odd artistic effect i feel like there's a lot of people standing around in postcards in that movie movie and I don't feel like I'm at a crime scene. I don't feel like I'm learning what happened there. Here I really do. I really get the covet which is what I love so much about Silence of the Lambs. Honestly, I think that that is the mission statement here. I think that as much as Ratner makes the claim that he wanted to put his own signature on anything, I think that this is more than any other film enamored with what Demi did in Lambs. Like he's trying to recreate that movie. He's not trying to do his own Lecter movie. He is trying to make a spiritually connected sister film to Silence of the Lambs. Listen, I think he did the same thing with X3 when trying to take the reins from Brian Singer. And I think that that's the right instinct for him is to try to give people a familiar feeling when you're dealing with a franchise film. Yeah, that wasn't a criticism. Okay. That was merely a commentary. Do you feel like this movie is emulating Silence of the Lambs? 
I think emulation is a strong word, yeah. but I think that there's callbacks that I like because it does give it a cohesive feel versus something so disparate. Like Hannibal. Yeah. It's certainly not that, where you feel like nothing is connected from Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal. They've gone so far into the gore and all of that that they've really pulled back and gotten back to the things that were working in Lambs. And there's not a lot of gore here. I mean, it should be said, this is probably the least violent of any of the Lecter movies. There's almost no blood. Yeah, I remember when I watched this in theaters when it originally came out that it felt very connected to Silence of the Lambs. I didn't have the experience of watching Hannibal, so who knows what I would have thought of this movie if I had taken that path. But watching these two originally in very close distinction, uh, Silence and Red Dragon, this isn't the same quality as Silence, but it, it feels like the same universe at least. Mm-hmm. It's good enough. I agree with you. It is not Silence of the Lambs, and it is a different vibe from Manhunter, but I like the idea of being able to see Manhunter as spiritually connected to Silence of the Lambs, which I never could. Even watching them back to back, I feel like Manhunter is an entirely different thing than what Demi was doing with Silence of the Lambs. And here, I see the connection. I agree completely. Manhunter didn't feel like part of the retrospective we're doing, whereas this does. Mm -hmm. It was kind of not quite Generation X, but it was not within the universe. I'd I'd, I'd say it's almost Generation X. Callie's also given lines that just don't exist in the book. I think my perspective having read the book makes me love Tally's work that much more because there are dialogues and things that are said that just don't happen in the book that here I think are helpful. For example, he gives him a tip on the Red Robin thing and it's a William Blake line. He knows that William Blake is involved in this and he's giving Graham a tip to go there. And I think that that is the right instinct. That was the right choice to put another reference there. It's a right choice to make Lecter smarter than the investigator and to know more than the investigator and they're trying to figure out what's in his mind. He's got something that everybody wants and if they can figure it out, they can stop the next attack. That's what worked about silence, but that wasn't how Manhunter was framed. In the end, it was just about, hey, if I hang out with you, I'll be just as perverted as you are and then I can find another pervert. It's different here and I feel like this makes it better by giving the relationship this quality. Now, we spend a lot of time with Ed Norton watching videotapes. And this kind of, again, I knew where this was going because of Manhunter, that these had to be processed. And, Stuart, you specifically had a problem with people using Super 8 film in the 80s. Would people have Super 8 films? Here they have video cassettes. It's a real tenuous reason why anyone would send a video cassette out to be processed. Come on, they wanted their home movies to say starring Billy <laughs> and have their little face in a star frame. Star yeah. wipe. You've got to love the star wipe. You got all those uh, video toaster effects. It's great. Yeah. Come on, they didn't have iMovie back then. They didn't. They didn't have a home computer to feed all of this and edit it in the way that makes it snazzy. And Retner loves this stuff. And this is part of the commentary. He really comes alive. He's like, I want to do this in all my movies. He, I think, had the most fun doing these goofy home movies and <laughs> even senses joy in it because there's a lot of it. And Manhunter, those images are haunting. Whenever we go back to that footage, I'm like, that's really upsetting to look at these people in happier times and to know their fate. And here, I'm just like, this is goofy. (laughs) It just doesn't have the same quality to it. It's not emotionally upsetting to watch these videos. It just feels more like a stunt. I agree with you. The way it's delivered, I did not feel bad seeing dead people when they were alive. But I was just wondering when the hell in this continuity Red Dragon takes place. Well, if if the attack in the orchestra happened in 1980, and it was six years later, I think they're trying to say this is 85, 86. 
Okay, so they said it was six years later? They didn't say it, but in the novel, the information I'm going for, it was six years after the capture, was the reunion between Graham and Lecter. That that much time had passed for him to go into retirement and to come back. See, I did not feel like six years had passed No, I thought it was a couple. Well, that's because Edward Norton still looks like he needs to go to high school. (laughs) (laughs) I really didn't get like that much time had passed. And the video cassettes and everything, and the fact that, you know, Anthony Hopkins looks a lot older than he did in Silence of the Lambs (laughs) doesn't help things. They didn't play into the retro at all. I mean, there's nothing about this that even feels 80s. Except there was no cell phones. That's the one thing, because I thought it would be a modern-day tale. Yeah, they want to fool you into that, because in the end, they don't want to make a story about fax machines and all of that. They don't want to do what they did in Manhunter and date themselves by the limited technology. So they've merely eliminated all the things that would be glaringly anachronistic, but they do not play up the kinds of things that they would have had. I don't feel like the makes and models of the phones and cars and all of that scream 80s. The clothes, the fashion. I'm not feeling 80s off of this movie in most of the scenes. And I think that's by choice, because they just don't want this to turn kitschy. Well, Jacob, you said you've been waiting this whole time to get to the Tooth Fairy. After about 40 minutes, we do, and we see Ray Fine as our Tooth Fairy. And I actually looked at the time this viewing to see how long it took. And it was only 20 minutes less. We got it about 40 minutes in. Last time it took about an hour. But man, that 20 minutes... It makes a big difference here. It felt like we got to him much quicker. Uh, yes, this pacing is great. Ted Tally, again, I am your biggest fan. You have figured out a way to tell these stories and then introduce these characters and tell the same thing, but much faster and much more easy to comprehend. I feel like it's just pound for pound a better script and better storytelling than we've had since Silence of the Lambs. What do you guys think of Ray Fiennes? As this killer. I complained a lot about the Tooth Fairy in Manhunter. It just didn't seem smart enough to be pulling off what he was doing. And I think a lot of that had to do with his look. He almost looked like Sloth from Goonies. Odd-shaped head and and all that. Uh, What I liked about Ray Fiennes here is that he's very normal looking. I love the idea that they do mention that he had surgery at some point, but that he has this horrible image about himself, but it's just this little cleft lip. It it actually doesn't look that bad, but I love how he's a fairly good looking guy, but how that would torment him having this messed up upbringing that he has, this abusive upbringing by his grandmother. I bought him because he was so normal looking that he would be able to pull this off, that he's actually more intimidating because he doesn't look like this monster. Well, he's no Michael Jackson. But no, thank I, God. <laughs> but I agree with you. Uh, that is what comes through when you cast Ray Fiennes in this role. Is That was something unclear to me when I read the book. I was like, is this guy deformed or does he just think he's deformed? We never really, really know. Most people avoid him at work and talk about him. We get the sense that he's a very massive bodybuilder. That much is played up. And I look at Ray Fiennes. Even here, I know he went to the gym, but I'm like, I'm still not getting that physicality out of him to really create that. Whereas some of these other choices, Sean Penn or Nick Cage, those guys could do it. But I do feel like that's what comes through. When you hire Ray Fiennes, you're going to get the sensitive side. You're going to get the tormented, tragic figure. I mean, truly, last time, Arnie, you talked about how sympathetic you found Dollar Hyde. I think he's even more so here. I think what we learn about him makes him even more sad. And we see him struggle in a way that he doesn't, even in the book, to fight the dragon and to stop what his mental illness is pushing him towards. I think it's a much more interesting 
performance than the previous movie, but I prefer Noonan. I think Noonan is scarier, and I want to be scared by Dragon, and Ray Fiennes does not do it. I agree with you. I wanted to like this one more. I really did, because I feel Tom Noonan as an actor doesn't have a lot of range, and this is why I went and watched The Constant Gardener, and I remembered Schindler's List, is I think Ray Fiennes is someone who could give range, and when I was saying in the last podcast about him that I felt this character was tormented and supposed to be sympathetic, and Jacob, you didn't see that, and I thought maybe Ray Fiennes would sell that more. He sold it to me! I found that came through very clear on this one, but he doesn't scare me. Mm-hmm. He's not a scary killer. He is no Buffalo Bill, and he is no Tom Noonan. And I never thought I'd say acclaimed actor Ray Fiennes is no Tom Noonan, but <laughs> in the role of the Tooth Fairy, sir, I've seen Tom Noonan, and you are no Tom Noonan. So I was actually in the part of the movie, if we're flip-flopping again, Jacob, the part of the movie I enjoyed when we got to in Manhunter, here, these scenes with Ray Fiennes and the dating of the blind chick and all of it, the movie stopped cold at 40 minutes for me. And when it started going into dollar hide, I was gone. I'm like, what happened? The momentum of this film went away and it's been replaced and I'm not engaged. Wow. It's opposite land on this show, I guess. (laughs) Like, I'm engaged now to this. I finally understand his relationship with Reba. I understand when they're petting the tiger. Like, I understand Michael Mann shot that beautifully. I had no idea why it was going on. Now I understand why that's going. When she's petting the tiger, I actually had to rewind I know this. where this is going. Does, <laughs> does she grab its balls? <laughs> <laughs> I had the same questions. I put it in my notes. Did she just cop a feel on the tiger? And if so, why? <laughs> I think she did. Particularly since it's not anesthetized. Can you believe it? They actually, there's some <laughs> weird laws about drugging animals now, and they couldn't do it for this movie. So it goes between a puppet and a real thing. But there are parts of that when Emily Watson is literally standing right next to a trained predator. You know, it, it could definitely have gone Siegfried and Roy there for her. Well, not if you're <laughs> groping it. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's the key. Maybe if only Siegfried had known (laughs) what to do. But so she did, right? I I can't help you. I I don't like this scene as much as the way man shot it because they don't do it in long takes. It's just cut to shit. I feel like it edits around so much. I can't tell what she's doing and I can't tell what's real and what's not with the tiger. It's just not as evocative. But I didn't notice any nut groping. But if she did it, hey, hats off. She got away with it. How many people can claim that? I squeezed her tiger's nuts. <laughs> she specifically, like, leans her body and reaches to the left towards his ass. And then it cuts to a close-up of her hand fondling something black through white fur. And I gotta say, we didn't talk about the score for this movie. I love the score. I'm, a, I'm an Elfman slut. So I immediately went out and bought the soundtrack to this after watching this movie for this review. And there is a track on the soundtrack called Tiger by the Balls. <laughs> Well, he saw what you saw. We talked a lot about a Manhunter, how once he gets with Reba, he's fighting the Red Dragon and and he's trying to stop being a serial killer. I didn't get that. Now I'm getting all that in this film. So maybe I just needed it to be made more obvious by Ratner here. (laughs) Obvious is good. I think that that is good that we understand why people are doing what we're doing. Yeah, I didn't get any of that with Manhunter. Here, I'm liking it. I think it is a flaw of Manhunter that we spend too much time with guys looking out at sunsets and not doing anything. I really do think that the mood becomes so pervasive that it kills the mystery. 
And I feel like here, I find the mystery engaging. I'm sad to see that you didn't like it, Arnie. It's a different take. It's an entirely different palette of colors. But I'm liking both dollar hides, but finds far less because he doesn't have it in his box of tools to be scary. It's just a physicality thing. I mean, when he takes off his clothes and shows the tattoo and all of that, I'm just like, you look skinny and you look stupid. And I don't, (laughs) I just feel like Noonan is a physically intimidating, imposing, his voice, his mannerisms, his height, all of that. It's a primal thing. You see him, you fear him. You look at Ray Fiennes, you're like, I could take that guy. Here's the thing with Fiennes, though. He is coming off more realistically as a mentally ill person. Whereas, yes, yes Noonan is a crazy serial killer monster. And I guess yes. I like how grounded Fines is where I could see this, you know, as some being in L.A., walking around the street, some homeless guy being like this. But let me ask you this. You're absolutely right. But do you think that it hurts the movie to have so much of it not be scary anymore? It doesn't hurt me because I never approach these as horror films. Going back to that old debate, these for me have always been police procedurals, thrillers. Yes, Hopkins and Silence of the Lambs, there's some chilling moments. But I never went into these films looking to be scared or having that be an expectation. Well, I think there's two different meanings of scary with the killer. I'm not saying scary as in you are scared, but scary as in he is an intimidating presence who you think can harm people. And I found Tom Noonan to be a scary presence who I believed could fuck people up. I don't quite get that with Ray Fiennes. I get that he's, you know, lifting and he's got the weights in his attic and yeah, he's got some ink, but I just don't get serial killer off of him. I get sad person and... I gotta say that his performance and my engagement picks up later on. I like it after he sleeps with the blind woman, he starts trying to reason with the dragon, he goes to the museum. I'm liking all of that. But during the courting scenes, the film stock scenes, all of this, it seems to go on for quite a while. And it's also during the time when he kills poor Philip Seymour Hoffman. I want to get into Philip Seymour Hoffman because maybe this is why I'm buying finds as the tooth fairy because of Hoffman when he gets captured in his acting like his fear sells I guess the scariness of the tooth fairy I, I love Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie me too he wanted to be the dragon as well he campaigned for the part I, I don't know that that would have worked but he's creepy in his own way but more in a tragic <laughs> if you wanted to take the character into even less physically intimidating more tragic <laughs> mentally ill that would you go with Hoffman you know he's an actor who I like Every time I see him. But yeah, he usually does play a type of character, kind of. A smarmy asshole. A loser. (laughs) He's always a loser. He's always the guy you would hate to be and would mock if you saw him on the street. I don't know that that's always the case. It's not 100%, but it is his persona. Yeah, it's it comes across. And here, you know, his portrayal of Freddy is so totally different from what we got in Manhunter. And here, he is truly a loathsome person. He doesn't have very much screen time at all. And if it wasn't Philip Seymour Hoffman, I probably wouldn't have paid attention at all to this role. But because it is him, and I know where Freddy's going... They're really using him in a slightly different way than they did in Manhunter. In Manhunter, I really felt like they were baiting Dragon to come out, right? Like they were going to catch him in a sting in Washington. They kind of do that here, but I don't know, it played different to me. Well, they didn't do the fake out here, so you didn't get the sense that they're doing the sting. Like they make reference, oh, make sure you can see the name of the building in the background, but there isn't that sense that they were going for the sting. I I felt like they just totally cut that out. 
Yeah, I didn't quite understand why they were doing this article in this movie without that sting scene. Was Graham wanting the dragon to attack Freddy, in your opinion? Well, you brought this up before in Manhunter, yeah. that that plays in the book. I don't get that sense here. I get the sense only that they want to piss off Dollarhide. They want yes. to rile him up, and they're hoping that he'll slip up if he is embroiled, and that they're hoping that by observing Lecter, they can find out more correspondence, because they're keeping the thing about him writing the fan letter, and that Lecter's been in correspondence, and all of that. That's the only thing I'm really getting out of this. I don't get the sense that they really think they can find the guy by doing this, and they just don't suspect. That's why they're not having police tales on Freddy. They just wouldn't suspect that he would even have made it there to kidnap him. Why would you want to piss him off? I don't see what that gains them. Well, because they're going to have a dialogue. I mean, because he could tell things in anger to Lecter about what was written about him that might reveal. You know what I mean? They're waiting for the next letter to come in for Hannibal. I mean, obviously, they don't want him to get so mad that he would go hurt someone, but I guess they know that his time frame is such that it will come the next moon no matter what his mood is. Philip Seymour Hoffman, when he dies, it does feel so much more like he deserves it and you kind of want to see him get it. But then you feel bad for him when he's crying in the chair. You definitely get all the emotions. I mean, I felt bad for the last guy when he's in the chair. When he's in the chair, it's horrible. I mean, shit. He's straining against the super glue and all that. That's just... Was Freddy super glued in Manhunter? I didn't get that. I got he was tied in Manhunter and that he was super glued here. I did not see the glue in Manhunter. Yes. At that point, I would think that you would have some empathy for any human that was in the clutches of the dragon. But you're right. He isn't so obviously a jerk the way that he was in Manhunter. I mean, Manhunter, he's like grabbing asses and being like, hey, I, you know, just so clearly a contemptible person. I love how much he plays the character down in this. He, very low key. But you get that seediness from him that he's not someone you'd want to be with. He's feeding off of all the worst. He's the tabloid journalist as we imagine him to be. The worse you can make the details, the more you can skew the story, the better it is to him. You know, as he's repeating back the things that they're feeding him, what he's really feeding off of is the lies and the dirt and playing up all the angles that are going to make it more salacious. That's what he wants to do. He wants to turn the Tooth Fairy story into something that's really provocative and not humanizing. And that's why he's going to get it. Because he's a liar and he's vain you know I like the way that they stage his capture here you know before it's just like oh he just walks to his car and he gets it but here the guy's parked in his spot and he's like that's my he's like that's got my name on it you know like that's the vanity that's driving it it's like they parked in his magic spot and you're right every scene with Hoffman plays better than it did in Manhunter I love the small detail but when he's in that chair he has the nastiest funkiest <laughs> Frostiest toenails. <laughs> I look at that and I'm like, get thee to a pedicure. <laughs> we didn't talk about the toilet paper scene this time because that's how they know to use the tattler is because Lecter gets the toilet paper note. This is one big area where I feel Manhunter did it better. Oh, yeah. Is in Manhunter, I really loved that toilet paper scene. It was one of the few scenes that I was really engaged by. You really got a feeling that clock was ticking. Here... You know, they have some janitor walking down a hallway. Hey, that's not some janitor. That's Run DMC. <laughs> well, it's Run. 
<laughs> it's not DMC. No, they could have been there doing some other cells. No, you know, the whole procedural, well, they use this, but we got ultraviolet light. And, like, that was cool. Like, you're totally wrapped up in here. You see him flip a few lenses and, oh, okay, now we can see some of the writing. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just because the familiarity of it now. Back then, all of that technology and watching the details of it, that was something that was cutting edge. We've never seen that. Here, this is happening in the 80s and it's a movie in 2002. We don't want people to be reminded of how archaic the technology is. We don't want to remind them that this is a movie happening in 1986. Did either of you recognize the guy who got that line, you're so sly, but so am I? Jacob, you specifically? No. Mm -mm. This guy, he was in X3. He was Kid Omega in X3. Okay, okay, yeah. But he was also Danny Glover's partner in Saw. <laughs> oh. And he was Miles on Lost for several seasons, which is why I always recognize him whenever he shows up. It's always the guy from Lost. But yeah, so he must be a friend of Ratner's or something. Everyone's a friend of Ratner's. I think Ray Fiennes does a fine job, though, in his scenes. It has to be hard for an actor to pull off talking to no one. In that scene in the attic where he's, please don't make me kill her, talking to the poster. I love that it's a poster. He doesn't even have a print. It's yes. just an advertisement for the museum. Yeah, it's great. I love it. It's it's telling. <laughs> I do think that that's nice. Quick, come on. Was this not reminding either of you guys a lot more of Psycho? Weren't you getting a little mother here? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this performance has come entirely from... Anthony Perkins before. It's just he wasn't a bodybuilder that put on false teeth. (laughs) Yeah, it was very much that. And that comes to the fore a bit more even later. But I still think that Fines did a great job with that scene. And while it may be a bit of psycho, this is out of the novel. So it's Harris's ripoff, not Fines or Ratner's. Right. Yeah. Well, again, I like the Tooth Fairy story more here. So I like to see that struggle. We got it set up earlier after he had sex with Reba. She goes missing. She's walking around the grounds, and that's when he goes through this struggle. Has she found out what's going on? I like that he's going through this battle where he has to literally consume the dragon to try to defeat it. Here, it felt much more like the dragon was a different entity that was trying to possess him. And Mm -hmm. that's why he was able to have that conversation with it and fight with it and struggle with it. And he had a way of fighting it. He went back to the lair. He went to Brooklyn (laughs) to take take on the original painting. I thought that was a bold move. Like, And you understand this time, I don't think you guys made the connection that the dragon was this painting that he had lying around his weird apartment. I mean, last time he had so many knickknacks, you didn't see that this was the dragon. This time, I mean, it's tattooed on his back. I mean, they make it overt. That's the dragon. That's what he's becoming. We find out He's been having a correspondence with the people that have the original lithograph, and he worms his way under false pretenses to get right up to it and eat it. (laughs) I love this. I loved it in the book. I love this now. I think this is a great moment, and it's so unexpected. You really, I wouldn't think, would know what he was going to do by going to that museum. I thought he was going to worship it. I didn't realize he was going to destroy it. And when he ate it, I thought he was taking the red dragon into him. Yeah. Like, by eating the red dragon, he'd become the red dragon. In the book, that is exactly how it is written. That is how it is conceived. It has been rewritten to mean the opposite, the way that Ted Talley has written it. But yes, you weren't wrong to think that that is something that he could be gaining strength from by allowing it to be a part of him. And and you talk about feeling scared or horror during a film. You know, I was really concerned for this 
200-year-old piece of art, even though yeah. I knew it was a movie. I'm like, oh my gosh, how is he doing that to this old piece of art? It's going to be lost forever. Isn't that funny? Isn't yes. that funny? I had the same feeling about what a violation it was to do to this thing in a museum where I'm like, I hear he has already been like beating on people and whatever, and I'm desensitized to it. But tear up some art, chew it up, and I'm like horrified. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's a real violation and a strange one. I love this scene. And it kind of nicely juxtaposes, not in any real logical way, but just in a thematic way with Lecter eating his meal as well. They're triple cutting. They're cutting between uh, Fines going to the Brooklyn Museum and Graham figuring out the connection with how the killer knew what was going on in the house with Lecter. When Lecter torments the classic chef that is in his cell cooking for him and scares him with a boo. I like that scene. You know what I didn't like about that scene is that it comes across that entire scene just shouldn't have been there because it's leading the audience to believe, oh, it's going to be a repeat of Silence of the Lambs. Hannibal's going to break out. Well, Hannibal can't break out. Yes. <laughs> this isn't that movie. And so why am I watching him have dinner? Yeah. It's, it reminds you that he's still involved in the story. It is comic relief. It allows the three principal characters to all have a sort of exciting montage. But at this point, Lecter's out of it. At this point, he's done. His story is told. And so to include him in this montage feels silly. But I don't mind seeing him. As post Signs of the Lambs, and we all admitted we wanted Hopkins here, why would you have him disappear? I don't feel like these scenes are so worthless that I'm getting nothing out of them. I just recognize- I actually do. I feel like any time after the toilet paper stuff that we see Hannibal is a waste. If this was Manhunter, I'd agree with you, but... You don't like the fact that he's mocking Chilton and the whole bit with the journal and I got your rejection letter. None of that's putting a smile on your face. Does it service the story? No. No. With a post-Silence of the Lamb film, I feel it's necessary. It would be a wonderful YouTube short to promote the film. But this is why you're going to see this film, is because you want to see it. Like the last time, would you say, cut him entirely? You would be fine with this character dropping out and not returning to the rest of the story because his utilitarian function has ended. Putting him in beyond that point where he was in the last one becomes indulgent. It doesn't service the story. It's just there to kind of give the audience a cheap thrill. If you cannot properly integrate him into the story in a meaningful way, then yeah, he's fluff and he should be cut in a tightly woven film. That said, I like seeing him. So I'm torn on this. I like it there. It's what the audience wants. You got to give the audience what it wants, but I would have liked to have seen it have a point too. I definitely feel like it's there more than it was on the book page. I do feel like Ted Talley spent a lot of time showing how Lecter has insights and is telling Graham things that he hasn't quite concluded yet. I do see that. The one thing that they haven't explained yet is why he would agree to do that. In the book, it becomes clear that he's got revenge on his mind and that every time he's saying, say hello to your wife and kids, he's getting closer to that goal. And here, when we get to the end, I'll ask you again if you see that as the fulfillment of Lecter's wishes. Now, one of the interesting things that they have chosen not to put here, Ratner, does not make the obvious choice of allowing us to hear the dragon. In the book, Long passages of dialogue. There is an alternate booming voice that you will do this and blah, blah, blah. And they cast it. Frank Langella did some voiceover work and they had it scripted. But in the end, they decided not going to use it. Good choice. Good choice. It just sounds like it would have come off as too goofy hearing this booming voice. I like that you just see Dollar High. It makes him look crazier talking to himself. 
if you would have added the voice, there would have definitely been moviegoers that would have thought that there was an actual entity there that was driving him to do this. And mm. you don't want that. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. I do like the single voice. It just, I think it works well because of Fine's performance here. I don't think I needed that voice. And I think it would have actually confused things. I like the guessing. I like wondering what he's going to do. I like the internal struggle, which is something that at the end I didn't get from Noonan. At the end, I got that Noonan had given in once he thinks he sees his girlfriend cheating on him. Mm -hmm. So here he sees that and he abducts her, but yet he's still conflicted. And I like that journey. Yeah. And he's taken measures really to separate himself from her. I mean, he's told her to get out of the car and, and go away. That didn't really play that way in the book or the previous movie. He really is in this version trying to seek a way out of the dragon. I mean, he had a shotgun. He was almost close to committing suicide. And it was only because he saw the Brooklyn Museum that he was inspired to be like, I'll go confront this where it lives and I'll destroy it this way. It's a weird thing to see a character, a villain, that you're waiting for the hero to stop almost correct himself without the intervention of the hero. It almost makes Will Graham at this point seem superfluous if he could stop being the dragon through means of a shotgun or self-control. Actually, that was exactly what I put in my notes after Dollar Hyde's house blows up. <laughs> is we, we get the whole thing at the end and he sets the house on fire and we're like, is he going to kill Reba? Is he going to kill himself? The shotgun goes off. Reba finds a body. And then we're thinking, well, Reba's trapped in the house. But then Reba gets out on her own. Blind. We got to remind our viewers she's blind. House on fire. No, no, but they already covered themselves. They had her walking around his place, counting steps in an earlier scene. Yes, but there was a circle of fire around her. <laughs> yeah. Nine <laughs> steps through the fire. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking at least Graham's going to save the blind woman. Wait, no, she got out on her own. What the hell is Graham's point? And this is when I realized it had to be a fake out death, right? Because Graham would be the most useless investigator ever if he got there just in time to, oh, he killed himself. Let's roll some credits now. Yeah. Well, he's about as useful as Hannibal is in this film, but doesn't nearly have the acting going on. He does so little. I agree. Although they do one clever little bit. The reason why they need to go to Graham to find out a link between the two murdered families is because they don't have the video from the first family's house. The Jacobis, there's a stepson, one that the father had that didn't live with this family. He was an adult who came and took that video as a memento. It's only mentioned as a line, but I liked it much better because it explains why they never made what could have been an obvious connection if they had gone through all that I like that. It's a nice little fix. You didn't necessarily need to do it, but this is kind of quality control. Tally's in there. He's tweaking every little bit. So just when I think Graham's completely useless, you get one of those feelings you only get in movies when you're like, this movie's going on too long. They're sitting out making s'mores and you know something bad's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> because no movie ends with a quiet moment of a family talking about something awful that happened three scenes ago. It just can't. <laughs> that just, you know when it goes on too long. It's like Poltergeist. No horror movie movie is going to end with a woman going, thank God we got this house exercise and then washing her hair. You know, it's like there's something else has got to happen because this is too anticlimactic. That said, I really like this ending. I liked it in the book. I'm so glad they retained it. It finally gives payout for Lecter leaking the address of where Graham lived. 
That is, I want to remind you, the whole point of why Lecter was working with Graham to begin with was so that he could sick Dollar Hyde on his family and get revenge for being incarcerated in the novel. I'll ask you here, does it play that way? Yes, that's how I always took it, is that Lecter was trying to get revenge by sicking Dollar Hyde on him. So at least we get the payoff here. I don't understand why earlier Dollar Hyde shoots Ralph Mandy, who works at the photo lab, and he's seen hitting on Reba. He walks up, shoots him. I don't know why he carries the body back to his van and then lays it in the house. And I don't know if that was planned or if that was just convenient. I don't get that, but I'll give it to him because at least we're getting a good payoff here. Yeah, and it's better than in the novel because in the novel, he just happens to run into a gas station attendant who has the same fucked up teeth, kills him and drags him back to the house. Like, it was really random. So for him to be able to use the obnoxious co-worker as the decoy. Was he planning? on using it as a decoy, though? Well, he wasn't planning on his house burning down, but when he realized that it was, he went and got the guy. So, yeah. (laughs) It's... Okay. There's a lot about the ending setup that feels mm, Hannibal-esque, if you would. (laughs) Some of the illogic that would later overcome his last novel. It's there in Red Dragon in little moments of unbelievability. It's also convenient that it took Dollar Hyde long enough to get there so Will could read all of his journal and know the exact words to use against him. Mm -hmm. No, that's true. But I kind of like that device. You know, it began with a book, it ends with a book. I always like symmetry. People that know, have listened to our podcast know I get a boner for this kind of stuff. It's the right kind of writing touches of, oh, see, if you pay attention, we'll do it again. So pay attention to everything. And I, I feel that's right. You know, he caught Lecter because of a book. He catches this guy because of a book. Well, and I like that for once we see that Will Graham maybe has some brains. He he actually you mm-hmm. know, he doesn't use the knife. He doesn't use the gun to get Dollar Hyde off his guard. He actually uses his brains and goes back to something he learned. Right. And there is one little voiceover. Ellen Burstyn plays the grandmother, and we know that that's how she speaks when we're introduced to Dollar Hyde way back at the beginning, when we first see him. So you guys made that connection easily. I just want to make sure you guys were on the same page when he went into that voice, what he was yes. doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this is, again, where I was thinking primal fear it reminds me of his split personality voice from there. Yeah, it's the one time that I liked Edward Norton in this film that I felt maybe he was actually doing some acting. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's a standout scene, and yeah, it's very psycho, but it's a great scene. That said, you call it symmetry, Stuart. I call it worst cop ever who keeps getting shot. (laughs) The the point of being a cop is to not get shot. Well, that's why you retired. This is what I like about this ending. Will Graham's wife has to end up shooting Dollar Hyde, and she's, like, traumatized. She's in tears as she's shooting him, like, traumatized that she just killed this guy. Graham's bleeding out everywhere. His son, like, there's no scene where, like, he hugs his son and says, son, I did it to save you. I didn't mean any of that. Like, I don't know what kind of trauma his son has now as his dad starts screaming at him. Seriously. Like, I like how broken the family is at the end. They try to show him on this boat, but I like that Hannibal succeeded. He's broken this family. Like, there's no way they could go back now. There's going to be some long conversations about why he yelled at his son while his son's pissing himself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, See, I have to show you this book where he did it, and I was just messing with him. Really, I don't hate you. In a lot of films, they would have had that scene. I like that they didn't do that. You know, much like with Hannibal, I like the end where it's, it's just twisted and demented, feeding brains to a kid. I like that 
Graham does not win at the end of this film. Now playing. We'll salute your movie as long as you psychologically torture a child. <laughs> yes. Yes, I will. <laughs> if you have the guts to do that, we will always give you a shout out. It's an effective moment. It's a solid way to end this. But of course, they got to take it one step further. There's always got to be a joke now. They've set that as the precedent ever since Silence of the Lambs. We must end with a funny. So we cut back to Lecter in the cell. And guess what? There's an attractive woman here to see him. Huh? Yes, because wouldn't that take place like five years later? Yeah. Maybe it's been five or six years. I it, We don't know how long it took Dollar Hyde to get to Florida. That's true. <laughs> and maybe they went on the longest yacht ride ever and he, they're just getting his letter. I don't understand how Hannibal is able to get a letter directly to Graham. Well, he knows his address or at least the P.O. box. But he's got to give that to the orderly. Maybe he's paying off Barney to go mail it for him. Barney was definitely doing stuff under the table. We know this from Hannibal, and it's more clear in the books. I, I agree. I don't trust that Barney. <laughs> Even Ridley Scott at the end of Hannibal said that when Lecter rode away on his bike, he was going back to Barney. Well, you know, guys, I was really fucked up by the timeline when it ends at Silence of the Lambs beginning. I went into the DVD bonus features on Red Dragon. It tries to give a timeline, but it fucks everything up even more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it puts Hannibal as taking place in 1990 mm. and Silence of the Lambs in February of 83. But they're 10 years apart, aren't they? Don't they call that out? Oh, boy. I, I can't even begin to parse out all the retconning here. Yeah. The, what <laughs> happens in the book is not what happens in the movie. And then the two different red dragons have different timelines themselves. I, I think you can say... Roughly breaking it down, 75 is when Lecter is caught, Red Dragon happens in 81, Silence of the Lambs happens like towards the mid to late 80s, and Hannibal would take place in the mid 90s, that's the book timeline, and then the movies, well, they just screw it all up. For the sake of a nice little ending, but you know, it's a prequel to Silence of the Lambs at this point, it needs that last note, it needs that to tie in to the audiences who haven't been paying attention. This is where we next go into Silence of the Lambs. Now, I gotta ask you, you know, we made such a big deal after Silence of the Lambs that it had to be about Clarice and it had to be about Hannibal for Hannibal. But given that didn't work out and that Hannibal's a single guy again, would you accept a future sequel in which he tries to again get back at Graham? Do you care about Norton enough to see what Lecter would do to him now? I don't care about the Will Graham of Red Dragon. I, I care about the Will Graham of Manhunter. I know that's controversial, but I don't care about Edward Norton's Will Graham. Would you accept a Will Graham, William Peterson sequel starring Anthony Hopkins? Yes, I will take that. <laughs> a sequel to Manhunter. But How about with Brian Cox? Yeah, yeah, it gets uh... all so confusing. <laughs> Unless he got plastic surgery to look like Brian Cox. There we go. <laughs> because he was a big fan of X-Men too. <laughs> And Cox could be overdubbed by Anthony Hopkins, so, yeah. No, And if Michael Mann comes back, then then I might give that a try. If Brett Ratner comes back, I might give it a try. <laughs> um, you know, I'd like to see Edward Norton work again. I haven't seen him in a while, so I'd be up for that sequel. But honestly, at this point, I don't know where they can take Lecter in a place that I want to see him go. Anything else would have to be a sequel to Hannibal, and I don't want that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, they got nine years between Silence and Hannibal. Yeah, I mean, he could go off, like I said, and then he could plot his revenge and focus entirely on Graham. I got the sense that after Hannibal, he was definitely done with Clarice. I mean, when you cut off your hand, you're definitely saying, I'm leaving this relationship. You know, I... I According I to the DVD bonus features of Red Dragon, they're now living together in Buenos Aires. Well, in the book, they are, yeah. Oh, well, they incorporated that as a bonus feature thing. So Sam- Yeah, read the book, and she willingly eats the brains and then runs off and does the tango with him <laughs> in Buenos Aires. But yes, I feel like Will Graham has never made the kind of impression, mostly because of the performers. I don't feel like Peterson, Norton, or even Julian Moore. If you, if you don't have an actor who that matches Anthony Hopkins, we don't care whether they come back or not. I always want to see Lecter back. I still want to see Lecter back, future or past. But Graham, I think Graham's story is done. Let him stay down in Marathon Beach. I agree. He kind of had his redemption. I don't really get that out of Norton's performance as much as I did for Peterson's. But I think that there's just no reason to continue that. Although I I see why you could. But again, honestly, at this point, I'm not sure if I want any more Lecter. I think that I've seen the best he can do with Silence of the Lambs. The worst he can do is Hannibal. This one's somewhere in between. And... I think I've had my highest high and lowest low. I don't know why I need to see it again. So, no, I don't want more William Graham. I'm not sure I want more Hannibal at this point. Well, you will be getting it next week. <laughs> I but know. Before we do, before we do, I guess we should wrap it up. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Red Dragon, Jacob? I recommend Red Dragon. For me, it wasn't the moody, atmospheric experience that Manhunter was, and I like that a lot, but Manhunter, I felt the first half was a lot stronger than the second half. I totally flip-flopped. This is a totally different movie. This is much more based in standard movie technique, much more connected to Silence of the Lambs and in that kind of movie storytelling, and I really like Ray Fiennes in this film. Like I like the story of the Tooth Fairy. If you want a romantic movie about a mentally ill man and a blind woman, I recommend Red Dragon. I really like that story here. It seems weird, but that was the draw for me. I thought that was really well done. And, it, you know, it doesn't hurt that Anthony Hopkins is playing Hannibal Lecter in here. That's always fun. Philip Seymour Hoffman's great as well. So a strong film, strong acting, stronger storytelling, much more straightforward than Manhunter. Though I didn't think it was as artistic, but just a different movie. And just as much enjoyable. So, yes, I recommend Red Dragon. What's funny is you say it's a love story about a mentally ill man and a blind woman with Anthony Hopkins. I'm picturing what this would be if it was one of those ensemble pieces like Valentine's Day or New Year's Eve. You'll be paying for it (laughs) in theaters next year, I'm sure. It's it's something you've watched. Didn't Val Kilmer do some movie like this at first sight? (laughs) Stewart. You know what? This is the exact same experience I had watching the two Exorcist 4s. But unlike that, where I didn't like either movie, I can enjoy both equally for their variants and their similarities. And it's exactly the same story. Just like Schrader was all dark and arty and all of that. The Michael Mann original is all dark and arty and not necessarily strong in the storytelling, but you get the conveyance of mood and filmmaking. It's a stronger piece of art, if you will. Whereas Dino, when he goes to remake it, he wants it to be commercial. He wants it 
to move faster. He wants it to appeal to the things that made the successful one a success. And so he's made a shamelessly commercial redo, just like Exorcist the Beginning was, was a shameless cribbing of what worked in the original but failed. This one is the same, but it works. And I definitely see the merits of both Manhunter and Red Dragon. I don't have to choose. I don't have to say one's better than the other. I can see both of them and say that I'm glad they both exist. I'm glad I had this experience to do this retrospective and see them both. I think they both need to be seen. I think at the end of the day, if I could only keep one, if I had to let one go, I would keep Red Dragon as the stronger film because it is the one that honors the story better. And it has my favorite favorite lector. So push come to shove, I'll go with Red Dragon over Manhunter. But at the end of the day, they both work. And I recommend both. You know, Jacob, you said we had inverse reactions here. And I certainly felt like it was opposite day when I was watching Red Dragon versus Manhunter. Because Manhunter, I just couldn't bear it till Tom Noonan showed up. And Red Dragon, I was just so into this movie. And then Ray Fine showed up. And so I didn't recommend Manhunter, and in Opposite Day, I am going to recommend Red Dragon. It was close until the end of the movie really pulled it out. I got to say that when Ray Fine showed up and we got a lot of the dramatic love story scenes that Jacob so enjoyed, I couldn't bear. When the action ending came up and then the twist ending and the final showdown, all of that really made this an enjoyable experience. And yeah, like Jacob said, Hannibal Lecter's showing up. He's not very integral to the plot, but he's an old friend. We like to see him so we like to have him over for dinner so yeah i recommend red dragon and i didn't recommend manhunter so for me the choice is absolutely clear but in a perfect world the perfect world brett ratner would have called up tom noonan and said hey you want to come over and play the tooth fairy one more time <laughs> michael jackson will do your theme song <laughs> <laughs> and hey if we're being forced to pick one over the other I'm going to go with Manhunter. Sorry. Even though it doesn't have Anthony Hopkins, I was just so consumed with the mood and atmosphere and the artistic take on that film. Oh, I, I really get you. That. I hear you. I don't think that's the wrong choice. I, Arnie, I, obviously, you're going with Red Dragon. Yes. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, this was better than Manhunter. In some ways, not as good. I never got that this was Graham's salvation here. You know, that was the big point of Manhunter is it was Graham's redemption and coming with his family here. Norton didn't quite sell me on it. But yeah, I like this film. I definitely say you check out Red Dragon. And if you're wanting the Hannibal Lecter series, I don't think you need to go back to Manhunter. I really don't. Any more than you need to see Generation X before you watch X-Men First Class to find out about Emma Frost. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me for Red Dragon. And we have one more Hannibal Lecter film. And because Stewart calls this a horror series, we're actually going to release it a day early next Monday, October 31st. <laughs> nice. Just in time. Trick or treat, we don't know yet, but you will get it for Halloween. I'm looking forward to revisiting Hannibal Rising. I did see it once. I don't remember hating it. I remember, much like Hannibal, thinking there were interesting parts, and I remember thinking there were some big problems, but I will be reviewing the book at Books and Nachos next week, and we'll be doing the conclusion, the story of the cannibal. How did he come to be the psychopathic cannibal we all know and love worldwide? It's, we'll get some answers next week, Hannibal Rising. And we also have coming up one last bonus podcast, our thank yous for our donors. 
the remake of The Thing came out two weeks ago, and we have got the review done, and it will be out this Friday to everyone who has donated $25 or more September or October of this year. And if you haven't yet, you have six more days till Halloween, 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 six more days till Halloween. Donate to Now Playing Podcast. <laughs> On November 1st, these go back in the vault. These go in with Child's Play and Jaws. You will not be able to hear our reviews of The Exorcist or The Thing after that. So please, $10 or more in the next week, you get five Exorcist podcasts as a thank you. <laughs> I'm about to turn blue and pass out, but please wrap it up. Donate the money. We got to go. Bye. See ya. And 25 or more, and you get the Thing podcast, and we thank you. And again, think about all the shows we do all year. Think about Stuart here boop-booping away. Please. (laughs) The links I will go to. Shameless. Like a street organ grinder with monkey. I will dance when you say, just give us the money and we will entertain. Or something close to it. We hope you enjoy the shows we do all year, and it's your donations that make it possible. So please just go to Now Playing Podcast and hit the donate button at the bottom, and we thank you for your support. Stuart, Jacob, I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. I regret it came to this world, but every game must have its ending. Remarkable boy. I do admire your courage. I think I'll eat your heart. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Hannibal Lecter Retrospective Series. That was good. Be sure to head to booksandnachos.com each week as Stuart will be reviewing the original Thomas Harris Hannibal Lecter novels. Oh, I'd love to get you on my couch. And also come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week as we review another Hannibal Lecter film. So you'll be wanting lots of these little chinwags, I take it. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films, such as the X-Files films, Final Destination, Inception, Avatar, X-Men, and many more. After all, as your mother tells you, my mother certainly told me, it is important, she always used to say, always to try new things. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss these films with other listeners. We could have some fun. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. You're very frank, Larry. I think it would be quite something to know you in private life. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Good pro quo. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. All good things to those who wait. I've waited, Clarice, but how long can you and old Jackie boy wait? Now Playing's Hannibal Lecter Retrospective Series is edited by Carlos and Arnie. Tedious. Very tedious. Credits performed by Jen and Brock. I'd give you full credit, of course. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM Pictures, Orion Pictures, or the Weinstein Company, and no infringement is intended. Remember what I said. 
If you can't be polite to our guests, you have to sit at the kiddies' table. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. That doesn't interest me, Doctor. Frankly, it's, it's the sort of thing that Migs would say. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. You fly back to school now, little starting. dragon ever since primal fear harvey keitel i came a little late to harvey keitel reservoir dogs but and then ray fines i mean i i haven't made seen, in manhattan i haven't seen ray fines <laughs> zing i haven't seen that one. Oh my gosh i have the j-lo factor you, you know, what's funny is I feel so much in so many ways I've switched places with Arnie during this film. You know, I don't like the Will stuff. I've seen Made in Manhattan and Arnie hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually not. I've seen it, too. <laughs> this is weird. Bizarro now playing. It wasn't that playing. bad. That's the shocking thing. Uh, well, we could cover that some other time. Yeah. When we finally do my rom-com record. Yes. <laughs> It was kind of not quite Generation X, but it was not within the universe. Yeah, exactly. I'd, I'd, I'd say it's almost Generation X. <laughs> oh, come on, Arnie. Arnie, you almost gave it a recommend. I almost gave Generation X a recommend. <laughs> That's <laughs> embarrassing. All right. <laughs> but in that so bad it's good, the way you did I Know Who Killed Me. Yes. Gasping. Gasping. <laughs> <laughs> Gasping for air. <laughs> Help him buy some air. <laughs> I'm actually pausing so you can take breaths. I wish we could talk. I wish we could chat longer. No, I really don't. It's 1 a.m. <laughs> I do wish we could chat longer. But I'm having an old friend for dinner. Well, tell Hopkins not to go easy on the carbs. <laughs> Just keep going. I'll do this for the rest of the podcast. But please wrap it up. Donate the money. We gotta go. Bye. See ya. Please. Our reviews of The Exorcist. <laughs> you will not be able to. <laughs>